0: From Pro Bono Students Canada, the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law, and CJSW 90.9, this is Hearsay.
1: Welcome to Hearsay. For today's episode, we chose to cover the topic of consent. We begin a conversation with Victoria Talk, who is a student at U of C Law and a fellow PBSC participant. She joins us for a conversation centered on the law of consent and sexual activity. We're then gonna move into a more general discussion of how consent exists in other aspects of day-to-day life and how this compares and contrasts with consent and sexual activity. I have two other people joining me for that conversation here today.
0: Hi, I'm Brennan and I'm really excited to be back for another episode with Hearsay.
1: I'm Katrina and I'm also very excited to be back. So let's get started. So today we have a guest on the podcast who has worked on the pro bono student project
2: called the
1: Consent Project. So why don't you introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, my name is Victoria Tulk, and I'm a third year law student at the University of Calgary. Um, I worked on the Consent Project in my first year as a volunteer, and then I took over the leadership of the project in my second year. And so what does the Consent Project do? Yeah, it's an interactive consent education program um, delivered by trained law student volunteers and we uh, operate to inform young people about sexual activity, consent, and sexual assault in both legal and social contexts. Cool.
1: Um, So as you know, our episode for this time around is basically comparing and contrasting different themes within consent and just consent as a whole. And so we have you on as a guest to talk about consent in relationship to sexual activity. And so this is something that you go into schools and you talk to young people about. So we thought that would be a great person to have um, for some legal education. So starting out, one of the things that came to my mind when we decided to do the concept of consent is that no matter what context you're looking at it, whether it's the collection and use of private data in a cyber world, or it's in in sexual activity, power dynamics and power imbalances plays a key role in our understanding of what is consent. So when you go into junior highs or high schools, what kind of conversations do you have around power and consent?
2: Yeah, um, before we get into the power imbalances, it's maybe helpful to kind of look at Um, what consent actually is in relation to sexual activity. So consent, um, according to the Criminal Code of Canada, is the voluntary agreement of a person to engage in sexual activity. And there are a number of uh, scenarios where, legally speaking, consent can be removed. And one of those scenarios is the exercise of authority. So what we talk to the kids about, we give them a number of hypothetical scenarios and ask them whether consent has or has not been obtained. And so an example of when someone um, would not be able to consent because of the exercise of authority would, say, be uh, someone taken into custody um, by a police officer, and if that police officer made an advance on them and they were not able to, um, they submitted to that um, advance because they felt that they had no other choice, they knew that police officer would have a lot of influence over their freedom or over their um, potential punishment. Um, That would be seen as a situation perhaps where um, the exercise of authority could actually remove consent.
1: Right, so that makes sense. So it's basically the idea that in the activity or a sexual activity context, power can then essentially negate
2: consent. Yeah, exactly. So for example, um, if we also look into the Harvey Weinstein case, I think that um, power and power dynamics played a really big role in, in what happened there. He was a very, very influential Hollywood mogul who essentially used his position of authority and his power and his influence over the industry um, to coerce women who, to engage in sexual activity with him. And I really think they felt like they had no other choice. They knew that their careers hinged on it. They knew how much power he had. And uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a really important example to think about.
1: Yeah. Um, When we look at granting and restricting consent, so there's obviously some clear laws around this, but for someone who maybe isn't knowledgeable about the laws or the written law, how does one person grant or restrict consent?
2: Yeah, this is a really complicated question. Um, because it, it's exactly that, what, what constitutes, what is voluntary agreement? Uh, how do you say yes? Um, one thing that one of our professors, Lisa Silver, Silver, always says is only yes means yes, and that's kind of a good rule of thumb to always ask somebody for consent because under the law there's a number of things um, that don't um, constitute consent, um, and so it can be very confusing about what a positive affirmation is. So I would always say it's better to ask.
1: Yeah. And so maybe for our viewers to think of, for our listeners to think of, (laughs) is what isn't consent? Yeah. As opposed to what is. Yeah,
2: that's almost a good way to think about it. And I think as the law expands, we're finding out more about what is not consent rather than what expressly is. And so I think that's helpful. Um, So... There is no consent by interpretation of actions. So, for example, somebody lifting up their pelvis, that is not seen as consent. Um, There's no such thing as implied um, consent. So you just assume someone is consenting. Um, That's not consent. Um, Another interesting one is somebody failing to say no or not resisting is Mm. also not considered consent. So just because someone's not expressly saying no... Does not mean they're consenting. Um, another interesting one is that consent is ongoing um, to the sexual activity at the time and the place in question. So what that means is the consent um, must continue throughout the activity, so consent can be withdrawn at any time. So if someone is consenting to a sexual activity and then asks the other person to stop, that is removing consent at that time. Okay,
1: And so one thing that you mentioned was the idea of the absence of a no is not yes. Mm -hmm. So an absence of a no is not consent. And I guess that could link back to, like, why would that be so? And that could link back to the idea of that authority or power where someone might be afraid to say no or fearful of the consequences. And so just because someone doesn't say no doesn't mean that they don't want to. Or that they like what's happening, is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of circumstances where someone would be terrified to say no, they don't know if their life's in danger, they don't know what the implications are if they say no. So out of fear, they just don't say anything. And I think a lot of times when a situation like that is happening to you, you kind of it, it's a very common response. There's a lot of different responses, but a very common response is just to freeze up because you you don't know what's going on. and um, so yeah, not saying no. is not consent.
1: And so the other part of what you mentioned kind of goes to another point we wanted to talk about, and that is when is consent required? So we have the first instance of consent and then what kind of follow-up is required or how frequent does someone check in? So obviously in this context, there's not like a set time that you (laughs) check in. So are there any kind of guidelines if a student were to ask you about this
2: yeah it can be really confusing and sometimes a little bit awkward right to think like do i have to be constantly asking or do you have a timer or something like that right but i think a good rule of thumb is um, asking consent anytime you change activities um, because under the law um, consent to one activity is not consent to any further activities or any future activities So I would say a good rule of thumb is to just ask. And while that can sound really awkward, you know, sometimes being like, do you consent to this? And, you know, people say maybe that ruins the mood, but you can ask it in different ways. Um, A good way um, that I would think of would be, you know, is this okay? Are you enjoying this? That kind of thing. Um, Yeah, that's a a good way to do it. Um, Another um, important thing is that consent um, can't be given in advance. So, um, if someone says that they want to have sex with you on a certain day, but then the next uh, the next day you go to have sex with them, that's not consenting to it at that time. You have to expressly consent at the time of the activity in question. And so us talking hypothetically yep. pre-sexual activity, if I'm like, oh, I might be
1: into this, that's not me saying, okay, next time we have sex, you can do
2: that. Exactly. Yes. At the specific time, they would need to say, do you want to do this or something along those lines. Cool. Um, So when
1: we look at consent, and you spoke to this, I think, a bit at the beginning, but what is considered meaningful consent or, I guess, what is not meaningful consent?
2: (laughs) Again, um, it is unclear under the law what exactly is consent. So it is helpful to point out um, what is not consent. But as I mentioned earlier, the best rule of thumb is that only yes means yes. So I would recommend getting a verbal affirmation of yes um, as the best way um, to communicate consent. Um, as of last year, there's also a new rule um, under the law where somebody um, who is trying to get consent has to take reasonable steps to obtain consent for the per- from the other person. They can't just assume that there is consent. Um, So asking would be um, reasonable steps and um, something along those lines. But it's still unclear exactly what the reasonable steps are. So it can be very confusing. That's why I always go back to the yes means yes, get a positive verbal affirmation. And reasonable steps, I assume, would not include persistently asking
1: until you get a yes If the first instance (laughs) is no. No, I
2: don't think the court would uh, look very favorably upon that. And I think that would almost be seen more as uh, something like force, which is something that can also remove consent.
1: Now, one thing that comes to mind, and I didn't prepare you for this, so we can cut this out depending on what you want to do with it. But does the law give anything specifically for being intoxicated and consent?
2: Yeah, so um, it is, again, one of those very tricky areas because, of course, there's different levels of intoxication, Um, but a good thing to remember is that intoxication by either alcohol or drugs can actually remove consent, but it is a little bit subjective to the specific facts of a case or um, what the circumstances are, and so, again, it can be very confusing, but clearly, if somebody is incapacitated or unconscious, they can't consent, But it's kind of the in-between where it gets a little bit confusing. But um, intoxication by alcohol or drugs does call consent into question. So what I usually tell students um, when I'm out in the classroom is if you have been consuming alcohol, if you have been consuming drugs, maybe that's not the best time to engage in activity or maybe you should... um, ask the other person, you know, how much they've had to drink. Those kinds of questions can kind of um, get you out of those tricky situations. But the, the main point is that um, intoxication does call the question of consent um, into question. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so that could probably factor into what reasonable steps were taken. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so in this context, how do we know when consent is breached?
2: Yeah, again, it's complicated because the way it works under the law and I'm sorry, I keep going back to it's complicated, but this is a really uh, challenging area of the law and it it can be um, very um, difficult to discern what exactly happened in these scenarios. Um, But under the law, consent is subjective to the person who's receiving the contact, the sexual contact. And so what that means is it depends on what is going on in that person's mind when they're receiving the contact. so any conduct (laughs) that is short of a voluntary agreement to engage in sexual activity is not consent but again that's that's confusing um but there are um earlier when i spoke about authority um, or exercise of authority as something that can remove consent Um, there are a number of other things as well um something like fraud um So, um, and then also the use of force and um, the threat of the use of force are also things that can legally remove consent. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the intoxication um, from alcohol or drugs can remove consent as well.
1: And so really what I get from this is, yes, it can be complicated to talk about, but in practice, it can be straightforward in that a yes is a yes. Yeah. And so the safe route is... Just getting that really clear, reasonable yes that isn't obtained after persistent
2: questioning or a lot of substances yeah. or that kind of thing. It's just it's think about making um, good choices in the moment as well with uh, with the intoxication stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so just
1: lightly or just briefly, I guess, <laughs> when consent is breached, what does legal recourse possibly look like?
2: Yeah, it definitely depends on the scenario and, and what exactly happened. But I think a good um, first step is to reach out to a sexual assault center. Um, they are uh, often uh, phone lines. Um, there's one in Calgary that's really good, um, Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse. And it's completely confidential. And then you can talk to somebody who knows about the law, who knows about what you might be going through. They're also trained um, to deal with um, trauma and uh the counseling that people might need in that scenario and I think that's a good first step and they also can talk to you about what your options are because um, you can definitely go to the police as well and and make a report but it depends on what you want to do and something I think that's really important for people who think they have been sexually assaulted or who are victims of sexual assault is to kind of give them some of the power back and let them make the decisions um, about what they want to do next so You can definitely report to the police, but I recommend talking to an assault center first and uh, learning more about what your options might be.
1: Right, and so I guess maybe the answer to this summed up is legal recourse looks like it could happen or there might be other options and it's really up to the victim um, of what kind of path they
2: want to take. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really important to empower the victim in this type of scenario. And um, from... Uh, personal experience and experiences I know um, other friends have been through, it's really hard to talk about something when it actually happens to you. And so it, if you bring it to the court, that that might be something that you want to do, um, but it might also not be. So I think it's important to empower the victim to make their, their own choice. That makes sense.
1: Um, and then our final point is kind of, uh, where do we go from here? <laughs> so it seems like on paper, the law looks fairly settled and like there's clear guidelines. But I think through our discussion, it's become clear that there's still areas left to be determined. And so are there any kind of key areas or topics
2: that you think still are being worked out? I mean, I, I think the whole area is is very complex, like I said, and I think it's kind of narrowing down what... Um, affirmative uh, consent actually means. And I think, as we've seen in the courts so far, the only way we can do that is by saying what consent is not. And I think that will continue to narrow. Um, Other than that, I think, um, with the rise of technology, that raises a lot of other consent issues. Um, Something we talk to our kids about when we go and do the consent project in schools, we talk about the sexting and what it means when they're sending each other photos and, and that kind of thing. And Um, Yeah, so I really think with the development of technology, it's going to open up um, just even more questions of what consent is and and how it's communicated and and that kind of thing.
1: Well, thanks so much for answering those questions. Before we end off, is there anything else that you want to bring up or anything you want to talk about in relation to either the consent project or just our topic here today?
2: (laughs) Uh, Just that I think this is a really important topic to be educated about. Um, These are scenarios that... Um, we are all dealing with on a daily basis and um, and that I think should be taught to kids as um, young as um, being in junior high or high school when they're dealing with relationships and when they're dealing with these scenarios. I think um, having more education about it um, gives us all more power and uh, really helps guide us in being safe in these kind of scenarios and uh,
1: yeah. Great well thanks so much <laughs> and see you next time. So I'm grateful to Victoria for joining the discussion with me around consent and sexual activity. Now I think what we wanted to do with today's episode is just move this to a larger discussion about consent in general and how consent plays a role in a variety of aspects of day-to-day life and essentially use the conversation around consent and sexual activity to compare and contrast of how consent can look different or similar in other aspects.
3: Yeah, so it reminded me a lot of things like social media and how we accept these terms before we start using it, and then we continue to use it and really don't have another chance to consent. We kind of consent at the beginning, and then it's implied that our consent remains throughout our time using the apps. There's actually a really interesting documentary on that called uh, "Terms and Conditions May Apply," and it kinds of goes through what you're really signing away and how little power you actually have once you click accept or once you consent.
1: Yeah, and I guess one of the things that comes to my mind when we think about consent and online activity, social media platforms, is not only that blanket consent at the beginning, but really the lack of control over customizing the experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like with sexual activity, the idea is Hopefully, it can look how I want it to look. I can choose the things I'm comfortable with. Uh, We can have a discussion about what things I don't want to experience. And so very much so, it's piece by piece.
3: Yeah. And online, it's this is what you get. If you want to use this service, you have to accept it. And you really have very little power. The only power you have is to not use it. But with social media, you can't really decide I'm not going to use this or that when so many things in life require you to have access
0: yeah no it it is a really tricky situation because you you have to choose between either consenting to whatever terms that may apply or not using it at all and and bearing whatever inconveniences that may cause, um especially where everything in our world is is moving more and more towards a technology focus. Uh, i I definitely see that as being an issue,
1: yeah, and I guess there's good policy reasons for not being able to customize your experience i mean imagine millions of users of one social media platform being able to dictate each individual term of that agreement it just doesn't make sense but there's still something inherently unsatisfactory about not really getting to choose what you want your experience to look like um, and not really always being fully aware of the implications of your consent
3: Yeah. And an interesting one with Instagram that I remember from the documentary is that your photos are actually their property once posted and they have the ability to sell these photos and to give them to third parties and have them use them on things like clickbait ads like that. So you kind of lose control of photographs and consent with that, especially relating to sexual experiences with provocative photographs being shared. It kind of has this similar undertone where you really don't have full control.
1: And yet the law is a little different around if I were to send out nude photographs to someone, it doesn't necessarily mean that they then have ownership of that and are able to distribute it. I mean, I don't know that the law is entirely clear on that either, but it's not the same in that these powerful corporations that gather our information, our photos, then technically have uh, some ownership over them and some right to do with them what they see fit.
3: Yeah. And some Instagram accounts are private and you're only releasing those photographs to a certain amount of people or so you think you're just showing them to your followers when they can actually be taken and shown to other people.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that is a really interesting uh, setting actually, because you can dictate who gets to see your information, but you don't get to dictate how much information the company sees right? And how much information they gather. Yeah. So I think that's that's a really interesting way that we can throttle some aspects of sharing information online, but others are, are entirely out of our control.
1: Yeah. And I guess in, in an online sense, social media, consent is layered. And we're looking at who do I want to consent to? And who do I get to consent to? So by controlling privacy settings, I'm controlling what my audience sees. But again, you know, we're also mindful of do we trust these companies and what do I want to consent for them to have? And oftentimes we have a more limited understanding, I guess, of what we're consenting to with the company that's controlling the data and the information and the implications of that flowing across borders and through social other social media platforms. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that this also made you think of something else other day to day topics, Brennan.
0: Um, I I think that the role of consent is also interesting in terms of sports. Um, Just just as an example, but often we see waivers being signed, um, you know, particularly contact sports or recreational sports where you do drop in activities, you just kind of sign off on a waiver and agree to uh, whatever kind of harm might, uh, might befall you when you're engaging in that activity. But it's a, it's a really blanket consent. Um, and I think it's, it's similar in its application to the ones that we see online, the ones that we see with Instagram, Facebook, when you're applying, um, where there's no real ability to customize your level of consent to injury or harm. Um, and I think that's very, very different from what we discussed with, uh, consent in terms of sexual contact. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I I don't really know if that's for better or for worse. But
1: Yeah, and there's an element of, in sports, some implied consent, Mm. which um, is not considered valid when it comes to sexual activity. The law doesn't recognize implied consent. But with sports, it's implied that if I'm signing up to play rugby, due to the nature of that sport, not only am I you know, consenting on my consent waiver to just general bodily harm that can ensue from playing a sport, but I'm giving implied consent to a certain type of tackling, to be tackled in general, and to other aspects of that sport, um, which obviously contrasts with sexual activity. Um, and I guess in general, I am able to consent to a certain degree of harm right which also contrasts with sexual activity
3: yeah and I feel like with sports there are those laws that are governed while you're playing which helps so you do consent to a certain amount but once that is exceeded then you are able to maybe have some legal recourse in that as well I think in hockey there's been a few examples where fights went too far and um, there ended up being lawsuits because you can only consent to a certain amount. And then once it goes beyond the laws of that sport, whatever you signed up to, then you might have some sort of legal recourse after.
0: Right. So there's like a scope as to what you can kind of consent to in in terms of sports. And once it transgresses beyond the realm of what would be considered part of the sport, then your, yeah. your consent might, uh, might yeah. run out.
1: Which is interesting to think about then connecting it back to social media activity. Where to reframe the way we look at it, are we on some level consenting to a certain amount of harm? In that we're saying, given the nature of social media, its cross-border platform, are we consenting to some level of harm? Is there an implied consent yeah. that we're giving?
3: I feel like that one's weird because that one has, doesn't have those laws governing it as much. It's kind of it's so
1: open and broad and, Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> unknown. I guess that's um, where we're at for time and just some things for our listeners to think about. Um, If you like what you heard or you have some comments, feel free to get in touch with us and contribute to this discussion. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much for listening. This episode of Hearsay was created by Katrina Thompson, Shyla Melashenko, and myself, Brennan Keynes, at CJSW Studios at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Hearsay is a project of the Calgary chapter of Pro Bono Students Canada, a national network of law students. Thanks again to our guest, Victoria Tulk, for joining our discussion today. You can download Hearsay as a podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next month. Thank you. Good night.